Welcome to History Talk, the podcast that brings together experts to discuss current events and historical perspective. My name is Eric Michael Rhodes, and I'm here with my co-host Lauren Henry. Together with you, our listeners, we'll be exploring how the past informs the present this year. That's right, Eric. And our first episode takes us to Brazil. In October of 2018, following months of divisive rhetoric, fake news, and general social upheaval, Brazilians elected far-right populist Jair Bolsonaro president. The backdrop? Soaring violent crime, massive political scandals, and a flagging, unequal economy. The so-called Trump of the tropics called for restoring order, reducing government's role in the economy, opposing political correctness, and cleansing the body politic of corruption. A retired military officer himself, Bolsonaro has made overtures to bringing back what he called, quote, the good old days of 1964 to 1985, when a repressive military regime ruled the country. The majority of the electorate shared in this nostalgia. In fact, a recent poll showed that 55% of Brazilians would support non-democratic rule if it, quote, solved problems. Here are some of the questions that we'll be trying to answer today. Why was Bolsonaro's campaign so appealing to so many Brazilians? What does the resurgence of far-right authoritarianism mean for a young democracy like Brazil? And what role does history play in shaping the future of Brazil? With us today to help make sense of all of this are two historians of Brazil. Jennifer Eagland is an assistant professor of environmental history slash sustainability at The Ohio State University and a faculty affiliate of the Mershon Center for International Security Studies. She is an expert on the history of the Brazilian energy sector during the 20th century. We're so glad to have you on, Dr. Eaglin. Thank you for having me. And joining us as well is Pedro Contesano. He's visiting assistant professor of history at Kenyon College. His research considers the role of law as both a tool of oppression and liberation in Latin America, with a particular focus on Rio de Janeiro. Thanks for being here, Dr. Contesano. Uh, thank you for having me. All right, doctors Eaglin and Contesano. Um, here in the United States, we're at the end of a long and hotly contested midterm electoral season. And a few weeks ago, Brazil's election came to a conclusion. What were some of the issues around which the election turned? What were the most salient concerns of everyday Brazilians? Corruption, the economy, violent crime? I would say that the the results of the election, while I think somewhat surprising to many people outside of Brazil, by the by the time that the second round of elections came up, because uh, elections in Brazil follow a first round, you have to win an outright majority. So the first round, um, uh, Jair Bolsonaro won forty six percent, and then that went on to a second round, uh, at which point he won fifty five percent of the vote. Um, I think by the time it got to the first round, many Brazilians it didn't actually think that a second round would be necessary. They thought that an outright that uh, Bolsonaro would win an outright majority in the first round, which is um, a significant shift in the kind of expectations of the election from even early on in the summer. And I would say uh, certainly a kind of exhaustion with corruption, all three of the things that you already mentioned, right? The um, corruption, the economy, and violent crime were um, were dramatic factors. I think one should add Bolsonaro was actually stabbed. Uh, I believe it was back in September. 
and mm-hmm. um, and I I would consider that one of the turning points when uh, I think the the Bolsonaro train really started rumbling. Uh, but I would love to hear Pedro's opinion. Um, yeah, I agree with Dr. Eagling uh, concerning uh, what were some of the reasons why people voted for Bolsonaro. I would uh, also agree that the stabbing episode sort of uh, uh, gave even more power to his campaign. Uh, but we can all, we, we have also to consider the fact that Lula da Silva, who is the Workers' Party uh, uh, leader and was president of Brazil for two terms, he uh, was arrested in uh, April 2018. So with Lula da Silva out of the picture, the Workers' Party had to sort of uh, make a candidate or create a candidate out of nowhere. Uh, they didn't have their, their their prime candidate anymore. And that wasn't enough. I mean, it, Lula da Silva wasn't able to transfer all his popularity to the Workers' Party candidate as well. And I would actually add, I mean, I, I completely agreed with that comment, um, but Lula's popularity was ever declining as well. So by the end of the election, the association with Lula became ever more toxic for the the leading PT uh, candidate, Haddad. What segments of the population did Bolsonaro primarily draw his support from? Uh, that is to say, what does the average Bolsonaro uh, voter look like? Well, Part of what actually allowed the second term, the second uh, election, or having to actually go to the second round, um, was that the northeast, northeastern voters still um, voted strongly in favor of Haddad, but it was actually the large city centers where um, where Bolsonaro really swept the election in in the major cities. So. Uh, that cuts across in in ways that were somewhat surprising to me. It certainly cut across uh, economic and uh, social structures in in ways that Bolsonaro maybe had not expected either. Uh, Dr. Contesano, what are your thoughts about the kind of profile of Bolsonaro's success? And is it different from other sort of political movements in the past? Uh, or is he following kind of uh, regular divisions within the Brazilian electorate? Well, I mean, the regional divide that uh, Dr. England uh, mentioned is uh, it was certainly clear at the end of the election when you looked at uh, the map of uh, where Adad won and where Bolsonaro won. Uh, I would add to that, uh, yes, uh, there was a cross-class kind of uh, support to to Bolsonaro, leaning towards uh, though to the middle and and, and richer parts of society, uh, but with the popular sector, with the poorest uh, parts of uh, those uh, big uh, urban centers, Bolsonaro uh, capitalized on the rise of uh, evangelical churches as. Uh, really political uh, sort of environments in which uh, pastors and, and other religious leaders were uh, campaigning for him. So this is a, a, a political project that has uh, uh, emerged recently uh, in Brazil, uh, not not the churches themselves, but the churches as as a, 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 a sort of political uh, uh, 
arena in which uh, people get together and vote for the same candidate. So he, he, he really capitalized on that and all the evangelical or almost all uh, the evangelical uh, vote uh, went for Bolsonaro. And that's that's one of the reasons why he was able to catch this uh, popular vote and steal some of those vote, votes from uh, the Workers' Party. Uh, many in the, the media refer to Bolsonaro as Brazil's Trump. Do either of you think that that's an accurate uh, comparison to draw? And in what sense? Um, I actually would say that uh, he benefited from the image of of being the Brazilian Trump. I, I certainly see a lot of similarities in um, a disregard or a, a utilization of of popular media, a disregard for traditional political politics, party politics. But at the same time, I actually think it's a misrepresentation of Bolsonaro and the fact that he's actually been in politics for 30 years. Uh, and so in some ways, as he as he campaigned as an outsider to clean up the Brazilian politics, uh, then I would say uh, he, uh, unlike Trump, who legitimately had not had extensive experience in politics, somewhat problematically, uh, that's actually not an accurate, accurate representation of Bolsonaro. So what do you think um, Bolsonaro gets from taking on this sort of outsider, um, uh, this this uh, mantle of outsiderness? What what do you think he gains from that? Or how did that play out in the election? Well, as Dr. Contesano already noted, uh, the toxic nature of the Brazilian pol- of Brazilian politics at this point, um, a complete disillusionment with the uh, the Petrobras scandal and with the, its subsequent expansion into uh, into the PT, into the um, which also contributed to, uh, Jilma Husefi's, uh former president, Jilma Husefi's impeachment, uh, and its continued kind of rot into uh, association with uh, current president uh, Michel Temer, um, are all things that made uh, that that made the image of a a candidate outside of the traditional Brazilian po- political structure even more appealing to uh, Brazilian voters. Well. I think Bolsonaro and Trump, uh, they are both uh, uh, personalities that embrace certain misogynist uh, uh, points of view uh, in society, and they attract a conservative uh, vote uh, by, quote-unquote, saying whatever they want to say uh, and, and and represent themselves as uh, the sort of bold guy that that can say uh, what the population wants to say but can't because of the dictatorship the dictatorship of the politically correct right so mm-hmm. they both they both uh, present themselves uh, in that way so in that way they're they're similar um, the press in Brazil has also compared bolsonaro to other world leaders such as uh, Rodrigo Duterte from the Philippines. Uh, because they expect Bolsonaro to uh, wage uh, sort of clean up 
campaign against corruption and violence that might uh, uh, remind us of what Duterte is doing in the Philippines, a very violent one, uh, one that doesn't respect due process or any sort of uh, legal uh, procedures uh, in order to put alleged corrupt and, and criminals in, in jail. So that's another comparison that has been made in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One thing that I think is also interesting is the sense that I get uh, from the way that you've described it, that uh, in many ways, there's a commonality in a sense of almost weaponized nostalgia. Uh, and I think that history has played an outsized role in the Brazilian election, perhaps even to a greater degree than in uh, American politics. So Bolsonaro loudly extols the right wing authoritarianism of the dictatorship that ruled Brazil from 1964 to 1985. For our listeners... Uh, who might not know very much about Brazilian political history, what enabled the dictatorship to take power in the 1960s? Uh, yeah, sure. So Brazil, uh, <clears throat> the coup d'etat uh, stage in Brazil happened in 1964. Uh, it was, there, there are several reasons to, uh, to, to that. One of them is, of course, the Cold War context and a sort of anti-communist uh, fear uh, uh, in Brazil, especially after the Cuban Revolution, Latin America was uh, sort of a, a became one of the uh, one of the big stages of of, of the Cold War. Uh, within Brazil, I could add. Uh, I mean, so it has U.S. support uh, to to the military coup in Brazil, uh, but within Brazil, uh, I would add. Uh, Sort of the support of the elites, uh, also sort of drawn into this anti-communist uh, fear uh, discourse. Uh, at the time, the, uh, the President João Goulart uh, was announcing uh, social reform, was announcing agrarian reform and other uh, kinds of uh, uh, reformist measures that were portrayed by the elites in Brazil as a communist threat. Right? Uh, in addition to that, the military itself had its own problems. There had been uh, certain uprisings within the military, so recent historiography has also uh, put in the picture the fact that uh, intramilitary problems were part of the coup uh, as the military tried to appease not only Brazil as a whole, but the institution of the military itself uh, by taking uh, direct control over government. The military took control of the government in 1964. What was life like for the average Brazilian under the dictatorship? Um, well, I would actually say that um, you have the. I mean, a lot of the uh, a lot of similar fears of uh, expanding violence that are that are kind of coloring in the uh, Bolsonaro's campaign and coloring in his his promises to clean up um, clean up. The American, I mean, the Brazilian politic, um, are are actually some of the components that were filling out the um, the Brazilian experience directly after the military coup. Uh, so you had a large campaign to clean out um, opposition, and that opposition, broadly speaking, was was kind of generalized into this communist threat um, or to this kind of anti-institutional threat uh, that justified the the intervention of the military uh, in 64. But um, it actually expanded to targeting, uh, as as Dr. Contesano already noted, 
targeting social movements um, and and groups that were trying that had been mobilizing between particularly between 60 and 64 as many of the kind of uh, political changes under Goulart um, were well and and his predecessor um, but uh, as those political changes uh, to give more voting rights to illiterates uh, and to also um, to giving um, expanding labor rights and other things that had actually inflamed elite um, uh, elites fears of um, particularly land reform. And so these are some of the kind of underlying components that that then under the military dictatorship, um, this kind of especially intensifies in the first maybe four or five years of the of the dictatorship, but they lead kind of a a, a broad sweeping violent repression of all kind of opposition to the government or uh, to the military government. Uh, and those are some of the things that I think uh, Bolsonaro has actually successfully mobilized the, the, the fears of present day violence in Brazil, which has reached unprecedented levels. Um, are, that's part of what has kind of legitimized this rhetoric of this n- nostalgia of, um, of the military dictatorship controlling violence, um, even if they were actually expanding violence in a lot of ways. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, so how is the military dictatorship remembered in Brazil? Uh, and is there any differences in the way that this period has been addressed in Brazilian politics and memory versus other South American countries that also have a history of dictatorships, like, say, Argentina? Well, Brazil dealt with uh, or started dealing with the, the memory of the dictatorship uh, fairly late. I mean, of course, uh, the memory battles around uh, what happened between 64 and 85 start as the dictatorship is uh, still in power. Uh, but uh, uh, talking about government uh, uh, initiatives regarding the dictatorship, there were some uh, sort of uh, compensations paid to people who were put in exile and arrested during the dictatorship uh, by the government. Uh, However, while uh, countries uh, such as Argentina, Uruguay, and Chile, uh, very early on after uh, the democratic transitions uh, established uh, truth commissions to investigate uh, the crimes committed during uh, their military regimes, uh, Brazil only established its own uh, official uh, truth commission in 2014 under Dilma Rousseff, uh, who was herself uh, part of uh, uh, the left-wing uh, resistance to the dictatorship and was herself tortured by the military uh, during that period. So when Dilma uh, was elected president, uh, one of her uh, more clear and, 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 and strong commitments was precisely to create a truth commission, and that was created in 2014. And they uh, sort of opened up the, the, the archives of the dictatorship, and they uh, did uh, a similar work that was done in Argentina and Chile uh, by investigating the crimes committed by the military and 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 bringing back the memory of those who disappeared or were arrested and killed by the military during the dictatorship. The other uh, part of this uh, uh, way of dealing with uh, the past in Brazil uh, regards uh, prosecutions, right? So. 
in Argentina, in Uruguay, uh, especially Argentina, uh, military men, uh, officials, and uh, and other uh, sort of lower ranks were prosecuted uh, for uh, crimes committed uh, during the military dictatorship in Argentina. Uh, although this goes back and forth in the sense that uh, Argentina also passed amnesty laws uh, uh, very early on, uh, the overall sort of attitude of the judicial institutions in Argentina was to prosecute uh, those uh, who committed crimes during the dictatorship, and many of them are still in jail up to this present day. Whereas in Brazil, uh, uh, although there were some prosecutions, nobody was ever convicted by crimes uh, committed during the dictatorship. So there's no stigma, right? So that's why Bolsonaro can go uh, uh, in front of parliament uh, uh, during Rousseff's impeachment, as uh, Professor Eagling mentioned, and, and praise the name of a torturer, of the man who tortured Rousseff herself, uh, because that man was never convicted. Nobody ever talked about him as being a, a criminal, as having committed crimes against humanity, uh, as being a human rights violator uh, from the official standpoint, although, of course, historians and others have uh, denounced uh, the, the, those crimes that happened during the dictatorship in Brazil. So that's, I think, one one of the, one of the biggest differences uh, between Brazil and Argentina, for example. Yeah, I um, completely agree with Dr. Cantusano's assessment. I think it's also worth kind of adding the um, political economic memory of the military dictatorship. So you have the, um, I mean, the military intervened to to quote unquote. Um, uh, rebalance or uh, or establish stability in an unstable political environment, um, whether that is entirely accurate or not, whether that was created or um, um, or or there really was a communist threat. All of these things—that's part of the rhetoric that justified the military dictatorship entering. Uh, and so, certainly today, as uh, as we see unhappiness with uh, the impeachment and with um, Tamer and 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 this kind of impression of a political vacuum, particularly with Lula uh, in in being imprisoned. It, there's more space, I think, to to make the similar argument that the military um, is potentially filling a void or that there would be that a return to a military dictatorship or that uh, Jair Bolsonaro invoking the military dictatorship as um, as a positive experience is again selling this idea of political stability that has um, kind of eroded. And then I would also add that um, uh, Brazil experienced a lot of economic growth under the military dictatorship, and so as Brazilian as the Brazilian economy fought has has fallen into one of its worst recessions since the dictatorship. Um, I think that also is is not entirely accurate, but is re repurposing um, and or shifting the kind of dialogue around what the military dictatorship represented 
in ways that are at least some of the successes of the military dictatorship, um, at least for a period, because actually the dictatorship collapsed uh, in the midst of a horrible economic um, implosion. But it's, it is easier to say there was a lot of economic growth under the dictatorship. Notwithstanding all of that catastrophe towards the end of the dictatorship, this was the period of the Brazilian miracle, right? I mean, there were significant economic gains made during the dictatorship, which makes it a complicated question, right? Um, so when did the downfall of the dictatorship begin and, and for what reasons? And was the transition a smooth one as it began in um, sort of the mid-1980s? Um, well, there is this, uh, I mean, as Dr. Contesano already noted, there are internal divisions within the military dictatorship, within the military leading this military dictatorship that, that kind of shape the ebb and flowing of the dictatorship. So there's um, there are conservative uh, hardliners that uh, are saying that the Brazilian politic is not going to act on its own behalf uh, or will not properly act on its own behalf and should thus, we should thus have this dictatorship. Um, but then there's also moderates within the, within the military that say that kind of justify the dictatorship or the intervention to say they had to stabilize and reestablish, clean out the, um, the opposition, clean out the threats of uh, communist threats and, and et cetera, after which the Brazilian politic could return to, um, to democracy, right? And so, um, so under um, uh, Ernesto Geisel's administration, uh, under the military dictatorship uh, in 74, you have this general abertura, this, this beginning of the political opening to, um, to remove some of the censorship on, uh, on media and um, to loosen or to open up more space for political um, for political engagement, and you know that was rocky in, in the fact that some some of that went well, some of that then leads to um, another clamping down on on um, uh, political dissent. But this, I would say, uh, is the very slow beginning of the transition back to um, democracy. This is going to accelerate in the 80s as Brazil, as the Brazilian economy um, hits some really, really ugly uh, road bumps. So as inflation, uh, a thing that had once again been one of the economic justifiers of the military intervening in 64 was uh, rampant inflation. And then as inflation returns to those levels and exceeds those levels again in the 80s, uh, and as... Brazil, along with the rest of Latin America, or much of Latin America, falls into what is generally known as the lost decade um, of of extensive um, debt and inflation, um, where y'all that that kind of erodes one of the pillars that had justified the military dictatorship, and you're also going to start to see more um, social movements starting to demand um, uh, starting to demand political, um, the return of political rights, such as the direita ja. And, and so even if this, uh, if this larger protest didn't directly uh, lead to the return to democracy, um, it, it put a lot of pressure on the military dictatorship to slowly um, 
return to a democratic system. Uh, actually, this is a perfect transition to talk to you, Dr. Eagland, a little bit about uh, the in, the economy and Bolsonaro. So uh, as we said before, you're a specialist in environmental history and sustainability. Uh, and Bolsonaro's platform was explicitly in favor of prioritizing development over the environment. Is this a mainstream perspective in Brazil that we've sort of protected the environment too much? Um, well, it's it's very interesting talking about it in as we're also talking about the comparison to the military dictatorship because the main agenda of the military dictatorship w- was development over everything, right? And and certainly within Brazil, there has historically been um, on the one hand a very um, cogent um, kind of activism around around environment around the environment. But there is also um, a a perception that um, that Brazil, amongst other countries, should not have to um, delay their own development in uh, in favor of environmental protections that other countries that have already reached certain developmental markers have not had to do. And so you you see that conflict throughout the dictatorship, uh, and I think that this is something that they kind of that Bolsonaro invoking in his platform. I think it's something that they fall back on when the economy starts to turn, right? So um so and under um under Lula as Brazil experienced monster amounts of economic growth, um I think you see uh, actually Brazil um uh, very much mobilized um, kind of foreign foreign diplomacy around their environmental, uh, positive environmental um, kind of energy matrix, right? So Brazil actually has one of the most diverse energy matrix in the world. So when I say that, I mean um, they rely on hydropower, they rely on nuclear energy, they rely on ethanol, as I research. Um, and uh, particularly hydropower is a huge part of their, their energy system, what, what they use for their, the majority of their energy um, and and so these are all things that they actually mobilized into uh, political capital, international political capital, earlier in the 2000s and even early in the 2010s. Uh, so uh, I, I would say as the economy has turned, it's uh, you're starting to see uh, more interest in exploiting the uh, the Amazon um, or exploiting and particularly talking about in um, expanding dams for more hydroelectric power, um, more deforestation, all of these things to exploit Brazil's natural resources for to turn the economy around. So, Dr. Contesano, to you now. Um, how have legal investigations paved the way for Bolsonaro's rise? Mm, well, um, so Operation Car Wash uh, led by the federal police and the federal public ministry, which is an independent institution that does investigations and prosecutions in Brazil, started in 2014 and uh, is now around its 50th phase. So it's the kind of police operation that uh, has taken the, the, the sort of the characteristic of a permanent Permanent uh, 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 prosecutorial uh, agenda 
coming from the, the federal public ministry and the federal police. Um, they uh, found uh, billions of dollars in corruption associated to contracts with the Brazilian public oil company Petrobras uh, and other contracts uh, within uh, uh, public companies uh, under the Workers' Party uh, government, right? They also found that this uh, kind of corruption scheme uh, had been uh, sort of had been in place since the military dictatorship. Uh, however, I must point out that uh, the 1988 constitution that came out of the transition process uh, and the Workers' Party government itself uh, both empowered those uh, institutions of investigation uh, to sort of create transparency and, and, and accountability within government. So that's one of the reasons why it's under the Workers' Party government that those things emerge uh, to the public, right? Uh, it's, it's a combination of things. Many would argue that the Workers' Party exaggerated uh, in terms of creating a corruption scheme uh, but uh, what investigations have found is that this corruption scheme was in place uh, at least since the 70s, uh, and, it, and it was just now sort of uh, discovered or at least unveiled by uh, the police precisely because the police has uh, an institutional power to control government that it didn't have before, right? Um, the other uh, sort of uh, phase of the uh, Operation Car Wash is the fact that uh, judge Moro, who is uh, a federal judge uh, in the state of Paraná in southern Brazil, and who sort of uh, uh, brought all the persecution sort of together under his jurisdiction, not all of it, there's, a, there's a, a part of it in Rio, there's a part of it in Brasilia, but a lot of the persecution uh, came to be under Moro's jurisdiction. He is himself a fan of uh, the clean hands operation that happened in the 1990s in Italy uh, that sort of uh, set out to, to wipe Italy of corruption, and he actively used the press uh, and, and, and sort of sought popular support for the operation uh, uh, in order to uh, keep it going. So Moro politicized uh, the operation by seeking popular support, by using the press, mm -hmm. and by uh, even sort of uh, doing certain illegal acts, uh, such as uh, uh, publicizing uh, uh, audio records of President Rousseff during the impeachment process. Uh, he also used very doubtful methods of imprisonment uh, and interrogation, uh, meaning that people would get arrested for uh, almost no reason uh, and then be interrogated and asked for information under circumstances that sort of pressured them to give up information, even if that information wasn't good, right? Uh, so Moro politicized it uh, very much since the beginning. Um, and the public, the federal public ministry uh, also sort of portrayed uh, the Workers' Party as a criminal organization, right? So that's another this mm -hmm. operation is certainly uh, a huge part of uh, uh, the sort of demise of politics that Professor Eaglin was talking about earlier, right? So they contributed a lot to create an anti-corruption agenda uh, in Brazil uh, among uh, uh, voters, uh, and they contributed a lot to uh, that 
to to make sure that that anti-corruption agenda is actually an anti-politics agenda, and in particular, an anti-workers' party agenda. Dr. Contesano, thanks for that. Um, Speaking of those judicial institutions, I'd like to ask you very quickly, um, you know, Given the challenge of Bolsonaro's election to the legal framework, uh, do you think that these judicial institutions, in your view, uh, will be able to stand up to the onslaught of Bolsonaro that's sort of anti, as you said, anti sort of um, government um, ideas that are in the body politic of Brazil at the moment? Well, the, the most recent news is that Judge Moro himself just accepted to be the Minister of Justice and Security under Bolsonaro. So, uh, you know, the, the same person who uh, ordered the arrest of Lula is now a part of the government. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, uh, the question for Moro, I think, as the Minister of Justice, I, I'm not going to touch on uh, individual courts like the Supreme Court itself, but let's talk about Moro himself. The question is whether he will be able to advance his anti-corruption agenda uh, independently from Bolsonaro's own political sort of circle, uh, that means going after people who are, who have supported Bolsonaro in the past and who are part of the government, still like he did as an independent judge before, and or uh, if Moro himself is going to be uh, sort of a part of the government in the sense that he will uh, act as almost a political police, going after only uh, the opposition. So I think that's the big question regarding judicial institutions at this point in Brazil is what is Moro, the former judge who, who conducted Operation Car Wash, is going to do now that he is under Bolsonaro as one of his mm-hmm. ministers. Dr. Eaglin, would you like to speak to that? Um, yeah, I actually completely agree with that analysis. And I, I just wanted to add that um, there's also been discussion of Bolsonaro joining the Ministry of Agriculture and the Ministry of the Environment uh, in ways that are have are, are, are worrisome for the environment, where he's uh, spoken out to be very uh, pro-agro corporations um, that want to deforest in favor of soy production and in favor of cattle, uh, cattle grazing, which are two of Brazil's largest uh, exports. Uh, and so, or agricultural exports. And so there, these are also ways that the institutions, that Bolsonaro has the opportunity to um, uh, reform the institutions for better or for worse. It's, it's encouraging that he, or we'll see what Moro um, does in uh, with the justice program. And he's actually... Um, I mean, originally he spoke of joining these two, the agriculture, agriculture and environment, and there's been a lot of um, kind of popular outrage and also within the political system some outrage about that. And so how does Bolsonaro respond to that? He's, he's backed away from it a bit since originally saying that, which maybe um, speaks to the possibility of, of maintaining the um, political infrastructure under Bolsonaro. Well, since this is a history-themed podcast, we generally try to resist in asking our guests to read the tea leaves of the future so much. Uh, But we sort of, in this case, have to. Um, And so what I would like to ask both of you on this note about uh, agriculture um, and the environment and some of the responses to this change is that 
in the United States following the election of Donald Trump, we've seen the emergence of a grassroots resistance movement that has shaped politics over the last two years. Uh, Do you foresee a similarly strong response to the Bolsonaro election and the creation perhaps of some sort of organized resistance movement in Brazil? Uh, sure. I, I, yeah, I see. I mean, the organized resistance as Joe Bolsonaro started uh, during the elections, uh, one of the sort of uh, uh, leadership movements, uh, you know, one of the movements that took a, a role of leadership uh, uh, to resist Bolsonaro was a women's movement, uh, remembering the fact that he is uh, an op- openly uh, misogynist and has uh, said outrageous uh, things regarding women's rights. Uh, I see uh, 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 well, foreseeing the future, I think the left in Brazil has to sort of reconnect with its popular basis that was lost somehow during this election. Uh, I see legal resistance as well in courts. So similar uh, regarding Trump, similar to the, some of the petitions that were brought against uh, the Muslim ban uh, here in the U.S., uh, I see the, these kinds of uh, sort of injections and, and petitions in courts uh, being part of the resistance. Uh, I think the biggest problem is how to contain violence uh, that is perpetrated by gangs, militia, uh, and armed groups uh, empowered by and sanctioned by Bolsonaro, especially against LGBT people, right? So this is one of the things that we haven't talked about yet, but during the election, political violence and violence against minorities, especially the LGBT minority, uh, increased dramatically in Brazil. And this uh, is one of those sort of sanctioned violence coming from the top uh, that people have to learn how to resist. And I'm not sure yet how is that going to be possible, given that the police is a military police very much uh, aligned to the Bolsonaro uh, ideological perspective. So going to the police might not work at this point. uh, And there's got to be some sort of uh, uh, grassroots uh, 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 sort of communitarian uh, defense and and, 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 uh, organizing to to protect people from this kind of violence in, in, in Brazil. Dr. Eaglin? Um, yeah, I, I certainly see a lot of space for um, the resistance. Uh, I, I will maybe contribute a, a less optimistic perspective, which is um, I, I was shocked by how, how prevalent, how visible the, the pro-Bolsonaro um, kind of supporters were um, in a way that to me was actually maybe more had more vitriol than uh than in trump's election uh and and that might be understating the vitriol of trump's election not understating the vitriol of uh, bolsonaro's election but uh but yeah I, I think that there's space for um for many social groups to to speak out and there there's a question i i agree with dr contesano of uh the left needs to um to rebuild itself, its its main kind of support networks that have been ostracized by the um, by recent political issues in in ways that that mirror the U.S. as well. And so we sit on the precipice of elections in the U.S. where we'll see how effective um, the kind of resistance movement has been here. And I think that maybe that will be a good indicator of some of the possibilities in other other markets, including Brazil and beyond Brazil as well. We'll wrap it up on that note. 
Thank you to our two guests, Drs. Jennifer Eaglin and Pedro Contesano. Thanks, everyone. This episode of History Talk Podcast was brought to you by Origins, Current Events and Historical Perspective, an online publication of the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center and the History Department at The Ohio State University in Columbus and Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. History Talk is supported by the Stanton Foundation. Our main editors are David Steyerwald, Stephen Kahn, and Nicholas Breivogel. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotheimer. Our audio producers and hosts are Lauren Henry and Eric Michael Rhodes. Song and band information can be found on our website. You can find our podcasts and more on our website, origins.osu.edu, on iTunes, Stitcher, and on SoundCloud, as well as wherever else you get your podcasts. And as always, you can find us on Twitter at at OriginsOSU and at History Talk Pod. Thanks for listening.